0: Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawassasi, and I'm your host for the Facts Roundtable podcast. I'm a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog. In this episode, we explore how food manufacturers detect allergens with scientist and researcher Melanie Downs, whose work focuses on allergenic foods. Melanie, welcome to the show. I have been really excited for this conversation. We're happy to have you here today.
1: Really happy to be here with you, Caroline.
0: Wonderful. So now I want people to know you work at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the Food Allergy Research and Resource Program, also known as FARP. You're a scientist, a researcher and assistant professor, and you work on the development and assessment of analytical tools for the detection of allergenic food residues. So before we go any further and take a deep dive into your work, can you explain to people your background and then how you became a scientist and got into this position?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I've always had uh, an interest in food. And when I was in high school, I actually thought maybe I wanted to be a professional chef. I then realized that that's a bit of a hard lifestyle, right? (laughs) Lots of nights and weekends and uncertainty. So I started looking around for other food related careers and ended up finding food science. And so I actually came to the University of Nebraska as an undergraduate to study in the food science department. In my sophomore year, I was kind of looking for some sort of undergrad experience, just some sort of lab job kind of keep me busy. And I got joined with FARP as an undergraduate. So I I started doing lowly laboratory tasks like washing dishes. (laughs) I did plenty of dishwashing in the lab. And then eventually I was able to do a a little mini undergraduate research project. And that really kind of got me hooked on both food allergens and research in general. So that was how I got connected. And then I went on to do my master's at Nebraska in the group as well. And then for my PhD, we did a joint program with FARP and professor in the United Kingdom. So I spent a few years there doing research and then came back and joined the faculty at the university. It's been a, a bit of a windy road, but kind of fell into it by accident, but really enjoy it.
0: It's really exciting. You worked overseas, too.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a great experience. Definitely something a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do, but it's great to be able to travel and see other cultures and work in different places. It was really exciting.
0: I also think it's really impressive that you zoned into food science. I didn't even know that was a thing. So, okay, I have a little bit of a similar pathway. I was very interested in food and worked in a bakery, have a degree in hotel and restaurant management, and was stunned when I realized there are food scientists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're an unseen force behind the scenes. I mean, there's lots of different careers in food science, everything from developing new products to working in food safety fields, food Microbiology. I mean, there's all sorts of processes that go into getting food in the stores. Food scientists are there
0: all along the way. Well, very fascinating. And I love that. But now can you explain to listeners what exactly FARP is and then how the work that's being done at FARP impacts our food allergy community?
1: Yeah, so FARP is a program within the Department of Food Science and Technology at the University of Nebraska, and back in the early 1990s, as you're probably aware, there wasn't much information out there on food allergies, both for consumers and for food manufacturers. So food manufacturers, I mean, they started to see that this was a real food safety issue, But there wasn't much information for them. There wasn't much research being conducted because there wasn't much, well, there's hardly any federal funding for food allergy research on the food science side. So in 1995, our founding director, Steve Taylor, brought together a group of food industry companies to fund this program where we conduct research on food allergies in all sorts of different ways including things like identifying what proteins in the foods are allergens, developing detection methods for food allergens, and then provide kind of the relevant information for food processors so that they can make sure they're doing everything they need to do to make sure foods are safe for food allergic consumers. So kind of both the research side and then translating that information that we learn to food manufacturers.
0: We need you. So thank you. And it's really (laughs) fascinating to me how there's this huge evolution of how the food comes from the grower and into our hands as consumers. It's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, it's quite intricate kind of interlinking chain, but it's become quite an efficient and thorough process and lots of work done along the way.
0: We appreciate your work. So now currently in the U.S., we have eight major allergens, peanut, tree nut, milk, egg, soy, wheat, finfish, and shellfish. What defines a food as allergenic? And are you able to research foods outside of the top eight allergens?
1: Yeah. So in general, any food that contains protein can be allergenic. And in fact, in the clinical literature, there's more than 160 foods that have been documented to cause allergic reactions. So in reality, almost any food can be allergenic now some foods for reasons we don't quite understand cause more food allergies cause allergies in more people than other foods so they're a bit more prevalent but really many different foods can be allergenic and so we mostly focus on those big eight foods that you mentioned because they affect the most number of people But we can do research on all sorts of different foods that could be allergens, and one of the interests in our group in general is trying to assess whether new foods that get introduced may pose risks for allergic individuals. So whether that cross-reactivity with an existing allergy that someone has, or perhaps whether new foods might have the potential to become major allergens in the future. So we look at all those different aspects.
0: So now when you say new foods, you mean like lupin or an ingredient that's new to the U.S., but like in England, lupin, I guess, is very familiar?
1: Yeah. So there are scenarios like that. There are also kind of more novel foods from other parts around the world or different processes that people make to make foods, that sort of thing. So we have quite a lot of innovators in the food world and people are always trying to find new things and new foods. So that's kind of what we mean by that. Anything that's new in the diet.
0: Very fascinating. Yeah. I'm absolutely loving this podcast. <laughs> I, I get to have my foodie side and then my nerdy science side all together.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the core of food science. <laughs> nerdy food lovers. <laughs>
0: I love it. That's the definition. So now can you explain what tools are used to detect the allergens?
1: Yeah. So the most common methods that we use detect proteins from the allergenic food source, right? Because that's the part of the food that would cause a reaction. And the important thing is that we need to be able to detect the proteins from the allergen when they're in another food that contains lots of other proteins. So we need something that's very specific for the allergen proteins that we're interested in. And so the most common methods for those are something called immunoassays. So these methods use antibodies to detect the food of interest. So I think for allergic individuals, you can think about it like, you know, when you have an allergy, your body produces... IGE antibodies to the food that you're allergic to. So it's a specific immune response. And those antibodies are specific enough that you would have a reaction to peanut, but not to wheat, for example. You, those antibodies can distinguish between those different types of proteins. So sort of in a similar way, we can develop antibodies in the laboratory that can distinguish peanut from wheat. Does that sort of make sense?
0: Really good example. Yes. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And so then we can take those antibodies and we can put them into different types of tests. So we can have tests that we run in the laboratory that can tell us, you know, how much of the food allergen is present in a product. So that's often very important information. We can also develop more rapid methods that can be used in a production facility. So those give kind of a qualitative answer. And by qualitative, it's kind of a detected, not detected answer, right? And so those are classic example for this used to be, it's the same technology they use for pregnancy tests. And they actually look pretty similar, except you put a food sample on. Nowadays, we actually have other examples. It's the same technology that they use for rapid coronavirus tests. I know this is probably going to date this particular podcast, but (laughs) so you can use essentially the same type of technology. And if you've seen any of those tests, the tests we use for allergens look pretty similar. So it's that kind of way for us to detect very specifically the proteins we're interested in and at a very sensitive level as well.
0: So, how does a manufacturer then get access to this technology that you've created?
1: So, there are actually quite a few commercially available tests, and so we've developed a number of these in our laboratories over the years, but many of those are now available commercially. So, they can purchase the test kits and different levels of complexity for the different tests, but oftentimes they can conduct those tests in the facility where the product is being run, especially if they're trying to see whether their cleaning procedures between the two products were sufficient. There's some of the tests that have swabs, so they can swab pieces of equipment and then use that in one of those rapid methods to see if there's detectable allergen milk, for example, on equipment surfaces.
0: Now, in terms of celiac, like sometimes I'll buy a gluten-free product and it will say certified gluten-free and they'll have all these different certifications listed. How does that work?
1: So those certifications are generally independent organizations that have certain certification standards that they have companies follow. So those are not regulatory defined marks. Now, normally, I think all of those Especially the celiac ones are in line with the gluten free regulations. They generally have additional requirements to be certified beyond just the regulatory requirements, though. So it's usually a bit of a program, but they do vary. Those are not all the same. So you'd have to really inquire with the certification organization about what their standards
0: are. Now, selfishly, my son is allergic to sesame. And it's outside of the top eight, but I know there's a lot of conversation right now and a lot of work trying to get that included in the grouping, you know, top nine. Are you developing any tests for Sesame or are they already out there?
1: There are already tests available for Sesame. So, and that's partly because it most of the method manufacturers, they operate internationally. So they have tests for a number of things that are considered allergens in various countries around the globe. So there are commercially available test kits for sesame already because it's on the list in other regulatory jurisdictions.
0: So my next question is, does the type of food make a difference? So if a company is producing a soup, Is that type of test different than a test of making a cracker or a flour?
1: Yeah, so the tests themselves are the same because they're designed to be so specific. In most cases, it doesn't particularly matter what type of food it's in. Now, there are some cases where the food that you're testing can have some impacts on particularly the the accuracy of the quantity that you might identify. So that's one of the things that our group works on is evaluating how test methods work in different foods and after different types of processing to be able to Continuously work to improve the accuracy of those tests. But there are not kind of hard and fast rules about you need one test for this type of food matrix and a different test for a different food matrix. The test principles are basically the same.
0: And now I know heat also changes the composition of food. So then how does heat factor into all of this testing?
1: Yeah, so most of the time the test kits do take that into account. So test manufacturers and method developers, they know that almost all foods are processed in one way or another, whether it's baked or fried or boiled. So they do try to make sure that they're test kits will work after different types of processing. But you're right, when you heat a food, the proteins unfold so they can change the protein shape. And so that sometimes can have an impact on especially the quantitative aspects of detection, right? So how much of the allergen is there. And so both us as well as commercial kit developers for testing kits, they're kind of continually working to improve those methods and their ability to quantify various allergens in various conditions. But there's all sorts of different food products out there, right? So, so we, can, we kind of need to keep doing testing and research as there's more and more different types of foods and different types of processing that we might need to look at.
0: Thank you. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add about testing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of our our current research is also working on more different types of testing methods. That's kind of where our research is focused as well. So we use something called mass spectrometry which is a big specialized instrument that just looks like a box from the outside to be honest but inside allows us to do very precise measurement uh, of proteins and so we can use that as well to develop new types of test methods for food allergens both to kind of complement the existing methods and maybe they, in some cases, they work better in some scenarios than the existing test methods. And, and so that's kind of a big area of active research for us right now. We can also use that technology to be able to kind of understand better how food processing affects allergen proteins so can, we can see how they respond in different conditions.
0: This is amazing to me, just simply amazing. And I'm so grateful for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So now what type of projects does your lab work on?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it is method development, like we talked about, and mass spectrometry in particular. But we also we work on improving methods and finding where methods do and don't work. So we do a lot of that type of research. We also look at just a better foundational understanding of the proteins that are present in allergenic foods. Now, a lot of food allergens come from plant sources, the protein compositions of those foods can actually be quite complex. And sometimes we know maybe a little bit less about that than you might think. So we're also interested in looking at really characterizing all the proteins that are in these allergenic foods, thinking about, okay, in the food itself, what levels of different allergens are present. So we can start to think about are there connections we can make between, for example, why certain foods seem to be more prominent allergens than others, right? Is it something about the proteins themselves that's important? Is it something about the amounts of the different proteins, right? A lot of that we still don't really know, so why different foods are are allergens more commonly than others. So we work a lot on core of what exactly is in allergenic foods.
0: Okay, so this is a crazy question. How do you develop the research?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it is, it is a lot of kind of thinking and brainstorming among our colleagues, but we also, sometimes we hear questions from the food industry as well. They may be whether they're kind of struggling to control a particular allergen or they've developed some sort of new process to make different foods. So sometimes we hear that. We also do interact with clinicians and clinical researchers to see what are the unknowns that they have about the foods and how foods behave as well as again what The kind of real composition of foods are uh, themselves.
0: Thank you. So now, if a person believes that a food product they purchase contains an allergen and error, what action should they take? What would be your recommendation?
1: Yeah. So also, we'll I'll put the disclaimer in that I'm not a clinician, right? So first and foremost, follow any clinically necessary steps as well as contacting, hopefully you have an allergist that you can contact. If you don't have an allergist, that would also be an important step to kind of make sure you understand your allergies. But beyond those clinical aspects, right, if we go back to the the food part, which is where we come in generally, you know, we'd encourage you to, if possible, save both the food and the packaging if it was a packaged food product. If you're in a restaurant, sometimes that can be more challenging, but if you're able to save a sample of the food, that can be useful as well. When it comes to packaged foods, the food packaging, the wrapper, actually sometimes has a lot of information on it about when and where the product was made that can be quite helpful. So uh, saving both the food sample uh, and the packaging is important. And especially if it's a perishable food item, um, you probably want to put that in a clean new Ziploc bag and stick it in the freezer so you know, we don't have any deterioration of the sample. And then, you know, we'd encourage you to contact the manufacturer if it was a packaged food product. Food companies really are concerned about food allergies and they do a lot to prevent allergic reactions from happening. And so if there are reactions, they certainly want to know about those issues because they take that very seriously. So contacting the manufacturer is a good first step. They will know the most about when the product was produced, under what conditions it was produced, and they will also have the ability, if necessary, to conduct a product recall. The food manufacturer can also facilitate some testing of the existing sample, if that's necessary. They may also have some of their own samples that they would be able to test as well. Now, if you come to a situation where the manufacturer is not as responsive as you'd like, you can, and or in any case, actually, if you'd like to, you can contact the FDA or the USDA, their consumer complaint coordinator, and there's someone assigned to each state for that purpose. So you can contact them to report a reaction as well. You can also visit our website for additional information and resources about product testing and other things.
0: And I'll make sure that we have your website listed at the end of this podcast so our listeners can tap into this. Now, let's say, for example, I suspect A cracker. Can I send that food sample to you because you have the super amazing testing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so if there is a case where there has been a suspected reaction to a food product, we would be able to do testing on that product. We don't generally just test foods out of curiosity. We generally want that to be associated with a specific incident. But if that is the case, we can uh, help facilitate that sort of analysis. And that information is also on our website as well.
0: Thank you so much. So before we wrap up today, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Well, we're just happy to be connected to all the great work that FACT is doing. Um, And we're so glad to be able to participate and communicate with the food allergic community. And it's always great to chat with you, Caroline. So I was very happy to be invited today.
0: Well, the feeling is completely mutual, and we do look forward to having you on the show again because there are so many more topics and questions we have for you. But thank you so much for being with us today, and we truly look forward to having you on the show again. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, share, and review our podcast, and be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.